is the little woman. I mean, if little husband. You're referring to Michael. Who the fuck else would I be he's referring asleep. to? He's Rouse him. Wake him up. Michael, right. you get your ass. You better go. From Slightly Unbalanced, we are still Queer As Folk. I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Today we're talking about episode 7 of season 5, and it's called Hope Against Hope. It first aired in the U.S. on June 26, 2005. It was written by Sean Postoff, and this is his last work on Queer As Folk. Over the years, he wrote seven episodes and served as story editor for 26 episodes. You know how I always complain about continuity and uh, institutional forgetfulness with Queer's Folk? Every episode. That's the story editor's fault. <laughs> Explains so much, doesn't it? Because there's what, there's about 80 episodes in this series? It's true. <laughs> he was responsible for about a quarter of yeah, them? Yeah, so switching off story editors was not a favor to this show. There it is. Hope Against Hope was directed by Tom Best. He only directed three episodes of Queer as Folk, but his more important role was as director of photography for 43 episodes. Here's the synopsis of Hope Against Hope. Justin dumps Brian and moves in with Ben and Michael, much to the consternation of Brian, who pays them a late-night drunken visit. After banning random hot guy Brandon from Babylon, Brian launches a contest with him to top the 10 hottest guys in Pittsburgh. Gross. How are they going to choose between who, like, on a consensus, (laughs) who are the 10 hottest guys? You notice that Justin didn't make that list. Hmm. Ted wasn't on the list either. Hmm. Ben is still depressed over Hunter running away from home. And it took Homer and Achilles to snap him out of it and join Michael in protest of Proposition 14 a seemingly impossible anti-gay rights ballot initiative. Lindsay decides to move in with her parents, which doesn't last a single night. When they try to set her up with a hunky male lawyer at the dinner table. In the last runner of the night, Ted exacts his revenge on the hot as fuck Troy that he's been stringing along for hours and hours of hot bottoming. And topping. There's a lot of versatility happening. Uh, I think only Troy bottomed, right? Mm, Did Ted I could have sworn there's, there's, there are moments where Ted bottoms. Ted definitely bottomed for the pity fuck from Troy. I don't remember him bottoming in his revenge state, though. I mean, to be honest, the camera was going upside down, around and around. <laughs> yeah, Handstands. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which we can't wait to talk about that. There was one main story in this episode and four runners. Uh, as usual, uh, lots packed into one episode. Everybody had to get their lines. Everybody had to get their camera time, their uh, moment, their moment. Uh, so let's talk about Brian's midlife crisis as the A story. The show kicks off with a little bit of mistaken identity. Brian's prowling around his Babylon nightclub thinking that people are talking about him. He's amazing. Unbelievable. When did he move to town? A couple weeks ago. I think his name is Brandon. I hear he's got the most beautiful cock. But no, they're talking about Brandon, who has the most amazing cock. Yeah, I want to see that I'm cock. Convinc- I'm convinced that Brandon is at least more well hung than Brian is. Oh, yeah, he should have been cast as Brian in the show. <laughs> yeah, but like also I'm trying to I've been trying to understand the who how people find people attractive in this particular period of time, because every time I look at Brandon, he looks a little tweaked out. 
and the hair and the hair looks a little stringy, greasy. Yeah. And I'm like, I, uh, I'm good. But I like those dismissive looks that he keeps giving Brian. Like every time he sees Brian, he's kind of like, <laughs> and looks away. I love that. He still hasn't even spoken yet. Uh, he spoke in this episode, but towards the very end. So he's at this point, he's just random hot guy. I almost thought he was fake. Stealing all the dick. Yeah. I mean, this seemed like, um, remember that episode where uh, Emmett was the porn star, not the porn star, but he was uh, in love with his fantasy porn star. Yes. Mm -hmm. Use my whole 27 was his screen name. For a while, I thought that Brandon might be just an imagination, like all in Brian's head. And I think it would have been better if that was the case. It wasn't because we meet him later. And they have their contest. But that's such but that's such an interesting setup because then you can use like what Brian like going through what Brian's identity crisis is and to have, say, someone who represents a part of Brian that seems to be fleeting, something that that may be falling away from him. That's actually very interesting. Listen, I, I ever we're obviously in like the world of reboots. We have ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so call us anytime. <laughs> Michael had a big U-turn on Brian here. And there's a scene that really irked me because it was so out of character for uh, Michael. And uh, it was reversed like within the same episode. So, and, and that's that scene in the comic shop when Michael and Justin are talking about Proposition 14. It's not just Ben and me. It's everyone. It's Mel and Linz and the kids, Eli and Monty. Maybe even you. Me? Well, if you and Brian were to ever... We won't. Well, you never know. Good mellow. Michael is weirdly optimistic about Justin actually getting the relationship that he wants from Brian. I can't follow it. (laughs) At what point did Michael adopt that theory? Uh, For the convenience of this storyline. Well, exactly, because the last several episodes had him majorly frustrated with Brian's refusal to evolve and do that loving, stable, monogamous, Eli and Monty style relationship. I don't understand it. Michael continually wants Brian to like, I guess, keep up with him. Like, I'm going to change. You need to change too. Like, Well, but Brian's his own person. Why does he have to do it for you? Yeah. Then he gives Justin a glimmer of hope that Brian may change. What the fuck? Change. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what was that for? Mr. Post Off. You know, normally, you know, as we go through all these episodes, I always try and offer like uh, a different take, a different point of view to a lot of your questions. And I'm sort of flabbergasted (laughs) for this season. I always try to give the show the benefit of the doubt. And I'm I'm losing it here. Well, (laughs) yes, I agree. Because the only people capable of making that optimistic assumption about Brian to Justin would be the people that don't know Brian well. So that narrows it down to Jennifer Taylor and Daphne. Everybody else, every other (laughs) character would say, you know, Brian, Brian's never going to change. No other character is going to like do this. So out of the blue, Brian's best friend says, oh, well, there's always hope, Justin. He might change. Uh He's not. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a hard season, season to critique. It's like season one which was written by Russell T. Davies predominantly. All the stories were lifted from the UK series. Mm -hmm. was excellent. And then it just kind of like started to coast downhill through season four. And then it went over the hill for season five. And we're on this roller coaster, the first big hill. Everything is going batshit crazy. And then Rosie O'Donnell shows up. (laughs) 
<laughs> and as much as you did not like her. I did the, not like her the, at all. No, not at all. I didn't like and her now, acting. You know, and I didn't like her story. So back so yeah, to this it, episode. It, yeah, it just, it feel, yeah, it, you can feel like this is a, this is a final season. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Justin moves out. You already know what I want. I've already told you. That's right, you have. A husband, a family, a home. All the things that make life worth living. Would you fucking cut it out? Just stop it. And I know you can't give me those things. Not can't. Can't implies that I'm incapable. It's that I won't. I accept that. I suppose it's why I've always loved you. Oh, the untamable beast. But to be a couple, both people have to want the same things. To move in the same direction. If they can't or, or won't, they really have nowhere to go. Probably not. Then why are we still doing this if we both know it's never going to work? Damn to find out. There was something I liked about this scene, which was a, a flashback to episode one, about the first time mm-hmm. that Brian took Justin home. Did you notice how much younger and hotter Brian looked in season one when put side by side with season five, Brian? Right, because season one, Brian hadn't been through, you know, <laughs> cancer. cancer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and losing his job and then almost losing his life, you know, all of his finances and then almost losing the person that he quote unquote loves and then gains it all back and all the stress of that. So, yeah, we, we see that the years have not been entirely kind to today, Brian. Yeah, season one, Brian was clearly 29. Now, 34-year-old Brian is a little bit long in the tooth. But this scene was, I thought, very touching. I thought it had good acting and it was shot well. I'm just bored with the concept of it, though. I think we've seen a version of this scene play out every season, and there's never anything new about it. I'm just finding it super tedious that Oh, Justin's leaving again. Yeah, I, I, I was describing this as this is this is the uh, evolution of what they wanted in the beginning to finding the compromise to not actually being able to do that compromise. Because you're right, we because we, we saw that what happened when Justin couldn't get what he wanted, so then he goes off with Ethan, and Ethan actually gave him everything he wanted, but then for convenience, Ethan cheats on him. So Justin goes back to the guy where he at least knows that Brian is going to fuck around, but he's always going to come home to him. And then now that Brian wants to continue that, Justin is saying, well, no, that's not enough for me. Yeah, it just keeps like, happening. <laughs> Which I guess is the whole point of this series, right? It's the, uh, if, if you really think about Queer as Folk as an epic, it's the evolution of Brian and Justin's attempts to find the man of his dreams. Uh, that, that kind of encapsulates the entire story. Mm-hmm. But... She's O'Pete's. It's like we keep seeing this over and over. It's like bring something new to it, right? Yeah, it's sort of it's sort of the Ross and Rachel situation in Friends. Yeah, <laughs> for ten years we see that happen. Don't you hate Ross? Didn't you say that once? Oh yeah, I think he's one of the worst characters for television. Yeah, period. <laughs> I knew I'd get you started. Uh, yes, I've I've had this conversation with many people. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, it almost feels like that uh, Justin leaving. It feels like this is that that saying, if you love something, let it go. You know, it will come back to you or whatever. But I I know this is our A story. Well, at least Brian is our A story here. But I almost felt like this was going to be a bigger moment because this actually feels like Justin is done. 
Oh, it's funny you say that because when I watched it the first time, it wasn't entirely clear to me that they broke up. At first, I thought that Justin just moved out and that they were they right. would still be like fuck friends or whatever. And then exactly. when I watched yeah, it the second like, time, I was like, oh, wait a minute. He like Justin really pulled the trigger and said later. I'm out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I was I almost felt like this should have been like a bigger moment. You know, they are the couple of this show. And it's really reading like, oh, well, this is just like one of those plot points because we got a whole bunch of other people we got to get to. Should have been a cliffhanger. So right. I been. thought this was going to be the end of the episode. But uh, to your point that we've made many times in this series is that we've seen that cliffhanger before. I also noticed that Justin has a surprisingly small amount of belongings. He had one he bag. Have much. He had like one big duffel bag full of stuff. It's like, where yeah. does he keep his, all of his Abercrombie shirts and his Levi underwear that he had? He has, he owns right. nothing. He has nothing. Yeah. Debbie weighed in. I can't believe he let you walk out and didn't even try to stop here. I didn't expect him to. That no good son of a bitch. How could he do that to you after all these years? He didn't do anything. I wanted one thing and he wanted another. And since neither one of us could give the other what he needed, we decided it would be best to move on. I did bump on something here is that Justin didn't quite tell Debbie the truth, though. He made it sound like it was a joint decision. But clearly, Brian didn't want him to leave. He simply couldn't find the words to say, uh, no, I love you, stay. But Justin phrases this as, we decided together that. It's like, no, you didn't. You totally no, there didn't. Was no, there was no there was no. That's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> so Brian learns Justin moved in with Michael and Ben. And this, this got a little thin for me, too. It's a relief to know you won't be dying of a broken heart anytime soon. Silly of us to even think you had one. I'm doing just fine. Yeah, we can see. And I'm sure Justin is too. Uh, he's doing better than fine. He picked himself up, dusted himself up, and started all over again. Glad to hear it. Be sure and give him my regards the next time you see him. You can tell yourself next time you're over at Michael and Ben's. He's moved in with them. We're expected to believe that by moving in with them that Michael won and converted Justin to parochial scenes of monogamy. But quite honestly, he had to go somewhere that night, right? Right. He went to a place that had an open room. Right. And since Hunter's <laughs> no longer involved in this show, let's go to where there's an open room, which is at Ben and Michael's. They have that giant house in the, you know, nice neighborhood. It was never, like, super clear that that's why he went there. It's like he told Brian when he was leaving, like, he doesn't know where he's going. He's going to figure something out. Well, he figured something out temporarily. And then in the same episode, he's finding his own apartment. And yet Brian flips the fuck out thinking that Michael and Ben captured him and lured him into that. I mean, he he comes in a lot like Loretta's husband. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, where the fuck is he? I was like, first of all, you have a lot of nerve. Yeah. (laughs) Even if you are drunk. I, I was ready for Ben to punch him and throw him out. <laughs> he would have been well within his right. I wrote a note that said, I like how Ben was about to roid rage on Brian. <laughs> <laughs> and he would have deserved it. Where is the little woman? I mean, if little husband. You're referring to Michael. Who the fuck else would I be he's referring asleep. to? asleep. Rouse him. Wake him up. Michael, right, we'll get right, your right, ass You down. better go. You better go. I'm not going anymore. No, I said you're Michael! Get your drunken ass out of my house. Ben. It's okay. I'll handle it. Just go to bed. You sure? Just backing up a little bit. Um, 
Don't you think that if Justin had, you know, like really thought this out, which he clearly did, he would have, you know, lined up a place to stay before he left? Maybe like get your own apartment first, kid. He, he clearly thought this through and he announced that to Brian. He said that he's made some decisions. Uh, I guess where to live wasn't one of them. Uh, but that seems like that'd be the first thing so that you could cleanly walk out. Not involve other people like that. Yeah. The other thing that I bumped on is that when Brian arrives at Michael and Ben's house and he's trying to break down the door, uh, Ben came rushing down to the door and he almost thought it was like a vacuum salesman or something. Why didn't he think that it was Hunter? That's what I was expecting. Exactly. Somebody's pounding on the door. You want to see Ben running down the You're stairs like, oh going, my Hunter's God. back. Oh my God. Yeah, it could be Hunter. Oh my God. Instead, Let it's like, shut there. the fuck up. I think we should rewrite this episode for Sean Postoff. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just clean up a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, back to Roid Rage uh, Ben on Brian. <laughs> Michael's now on the opposite side of what he was telling Justin in the comic shop earlier. You infected him. With your petty bourgeois, mediocre, conformist, assimilationist life. Thanks to you, he's got visions, babies, weddings, white picket fences, dancing in his blonde little head. And you think I put them there? Before you and your husband tied the noose around your necks, he was perfectly happy. And now, he's a defector, just like the rest he of He was you. never perfectly happy. Waiting for years for you to say, I love you. You're the only one I want. That's but not who I am. Don't we all know? But he didn't leave because I infected him. He left because of you. Who wouldn't? Yes, that there was some sort of like grooming happening. Right. <laughs> that, that, that turned Justin into this, you know, wannabe monogamous, you know, breeder kind of thing. And it's like, Brian, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like you are the one who is showing himself to be truly stuck in what you want. So how dare you try and hold it against someone like Justin, who is just who is still incredibly young and still figuring out who he is. Maybe right now he does want to have the marriage and he because he sees that stability, which is something he, you know, we've seen what his home life was before he came out and then the relationship he had with his father. So, yeah, maybe he was trying to find stability because he really hasn't had that. I don't know what time it was that Brian crashed uh, into Ben and Michael's house, but he headed right back to uh, the bar. <laughs> yep. Well, because I think they had to have been bed in bed by like 930. So the night was very young. <laughs> it kind of reminded me, though. It's like, I've done something like that before. I've like left the bar and then gotten home. And then somebody's like, get back here. And then, <laughs> and then you go back to the bar and it's like 230 or so. And then if it's a Saturday night, you're going to be out until five. <laughs> right. Because Berlin is still going. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, so Brandon uh, is on the dance floor at Babylon when Brian's uh, riled up self comes back. I did like this interstitial scene, though. Brian's failure with Justin and his dust up with Michael triggers this like frustration with Brandon. What's up, boss? See that? How can I miss it? Are you going to do anything about it? It's hot. Attracts a guy, sells drinks. Yeah, well, fuck the drinks. If he wants to get his dick sucked, he can take his act to the back room. I'll tell him. Wait. Tell him he's barred from the club. Permanently. Oh, come on, right? Do it. Now. Brandon is like 
popping up around every corner and out of bushes all the time. Brian's had enough and just bans him from the club. Because the icing on the cake to everything is Brandon has the nerve to get blown on the dance floor of Brian's club. Totally fine with that. <laughs> like that's the that's like the ultimate. He's like, I don't even need the back room. I yeah. will do this out in front of everybody and everyone can watch, which, by the way, I totally have seen that happen before. Oh, yeah. It's hot. So the funny thing about this, though, is that. Couldn't Brandon just go to Popper's? And since he's so hot and everybody's complimenting him, wouldn't they just follow him there? It's like, why is getting oh, right? kicked out of Babylon such a big deal? He could have been like, hey, y'all, I'm out. Right. Took the Three bar with him. The club just leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Justin has a new apartment. Hi, Jennifer Taylor. Welcome back, Sherry Miller. It's um, quite a come down from Brian's place. You weren't so thrilled when I moved in there. No, I guess not. I just wish that... I can't believe I'm actually hearing myself say this. What? That you and he could have somehow managed to work things out. She is the realtor of gay Pittsburgh, and I love it. She's got a great uh, story arc coming up. Uh, Starts next episode. You're going to love it. Yes, I can't wait. The thing about Justin's apartment that I think needed to be immediately mentioned was that Justin was looking for a live work art studio. He wasn't looking for a high end loft like Brian, because without that info, yeah, Jennifer, you're right. That's a total dump. Nobody should live there, but Justin's looking for a place to to live and work. Yeah. Tell us that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's good to see uh, Jennifer Taylor back though. Love Um, the coat. Yeah. (laughs) I pointed that out too. (laughs) Uh, this story wraps up with Justin and Brian uh, running into each other on the sidewalk. And this was good. Uh, I love this. It was also really pretty and mm-hmm. clearly not on Liberty Avenue. I don't know what this pedestrian mall was, but I loved it. I was I was into that neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, because I, I love that when they when everyone else is leaving the Proposition 14 meeting, we see Justin. He goes left while everyone else goes right. And he so happens to run into him. And I'm like, where? Yeah, what is this neighborhood? Where, where did he find this artist left? It reminded me of old Montreal. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> There's uh, some nice awkward dialogue uh, that mm-hmm. uh, exes are inclined to do when they run into each other uh, on pretty oh streets. Uh, this got me thinking, though, uh, like I said earlier, being fuck buddies is off the table. It's like, why wasn't this moment more of a, like, God, I miss you. And then they, like, pull each other into a doorway or something. Yeah, or into the alley, something. Something to add confusion to our perception of what is obstructing this relationship. Yes, they're physically way into each other. No, they're miles apart on what they want for the rest of their life. But instead, it was like, hands off. We're not allowed to engage sexually. So I thought that was a... Know, kind of a, a missed gay moment because I don't know about you, but breakups often result in post breakup sex for days, weeks, months, years, mm-hmm. <laughs> sometimes. Yep. Here it was just had this sense of permanency. Like they broke up. It was like with Justin and Ethan at every opportunity, Justin saying, let's not talk about Brian. I'm with Ethan now. <laughs> right. One thing I didn't like about the way the scene ended was uh, that very cliche song over the closing credits. Yeah. Uh, I think the name of the song is You Are My Sunshine. Dead, I 
but like it was like the, the rock version. Uh, I, I think that helped, but um, <laughs> like the song about sunshine. Yeah, sunshine didn't need to be there because that's Justin. Justin's sunshine, and there's the the lyrics. You never noticed how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. It's like, oh, you are like feeding us a meal here. So I thought this was very, a missed yeah, opportunity. It's very fatty, very full, very much like, mm, I don't, I don't need that extra helping. We get it. This is Still Queer as Folk, season five, episode seven. Hope against hope. Stick around. We've got more to come. Runner number one of the night, uh, Ben Breckner. Uh, ben is in a funk over Hunter ben. wandering away. I had a problem with Michael here, though. I keep searching for something, something that we could have said, we should have said that would have changed his mind. None of you found it? What we should have said? That's because there isn't anything. He was determined to leave, so he left. There wasn't anything we could have done to have stopped him. Why are you beating yourself up over it? because he was my blood. You still have a healthy baby daughter, Michael. She'll be loved, sent to a good school, raised in a world where she'll have every chance, every opportunity, not like Hunter who had nothing, less than nothing. I wanted to give him all those things he never had. So did I. But I failed. You didn't fail. Yes, I did. I did fail. We gave him a home. Everything we could of ourselves to make him part of our family. And why isn't he still here? It kind of came off as Michael seemingly being sort of fine that Hunter was out of his life, as if, like, we did all we could. He's gone. Get over it, Ben. Yes. He felt, I, I wrote, indifferent. Yeah. Like, he, he, like, he does, he's, he's like, yeah, I guess what's his name left? So, um. Yeah, what was that kid's name again? Go ahead and move on. Yeah. yeah I, I, it doesn't, I don't know. He was here for a minute, but uh, who cares? Yeah, I started you emptying know, his yeah. room out. Oh, right? <laughs> As Hunter was leaving, <laughs> right. Michael was shoveling it down the stairs. Mm -hmm. Did you find it weird, though, that Ben didn't go out searching for Hunter? Because he has a track record of being able to track that youngster down. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I thought about that because, yes, we know that Ben was, I don't want to say encouraging, but he wasn't really stopping him. But I think there was a part of Ben that really didn't think that this would be it that likely Hunter would come to his senses and he would come home. And I think that's what has been so distraught is that, oh no, he is actually gone. And that's really hitting him. Like, I think what really actually was very moving for me was when Ben said that he was my blood. And I, and I was like, oh, like, I, I think there's a, another meaning to that. Like, it was, like, yes, that's not his like actual son, but something that they shared was obviously, you know, that they were both HIV positive. So like that, their, their bond was already something deeper than what say Michael and Hunter would have. Then to also bring in what JR means in the situation was, I thought, I was hoping that that was what would make Michael realize like, oh, Ben really is hurting and we can't just diminish that because Hunter made his choice. But Ben didn't do anything about it, though, which is my point. Whereas if you remember whack when they first captured him, when he was the, <laughs> the hooker, he used to like leave all the time and come back. And on at least two occasions, Ben went out and searched Pittsburgh for him yes. and found him and brought him condoms and a coat and all kinds of other stuff. 
He just kind of sat home and stared at the wall this time. If he was that upset, he should have gone out looking for him. But where, when does it come up point that, you know, Hunter is going to be at adult age? And so no matter what Ben does, even if he does find him, he can't force Hunter to come. No, but he can he can talk to him the same way that he did when he was trying to bring him back from hooking. Because that's that's really how Hunter came back. Anyway, Hunter ended up making his own decision based on Ben tracking him down and giving Zen Ben words of wisdom. Here, he he just didn't take any action. Drive around Pittsburgh or something. Drive around futilely. Right, rather than be in mourning for what happened. I mean, we agreed in the last episode that we didn't like that this is the way that they were going to wrap up Hunter's storyline. So we should have known that they were not going (laughs) to allow our characters to do something that makes sense to us. Do not go quietly into that good night, Hunter. (laughs) Uh, so Ben in Prop 14, uh, some incongruity popped up here. Uh, it seems a little unlikely to me that Ben would be so overwrought over Hunter that he would just abdicate his role as the gay community leader. Remember we talked about how somehow at some point Ben and Melanie became like the the gay leaders, like with that bike ride that they did. All of a sudden they're the ones up on stage. And here, do you think that Ben would just give up? Just because Hunter left? But to Ben's argument with Michael is that it feels like Michael wants them to focus on Prop 14 almost in an effort to forget about Hunter. And Ben doesn't want to forget about him. But then that also goes to your point. Like, well, yeah, don't forget about him. Go and try and find him. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, it's it's all it's it's really mushy. It's really hard to pinpoint what they want us to do with it. On the other hand, I do like that Sean Postoff isn't letting Ben simply get over him in 12 minutes and move on and never mention him again. I do like that he's building in some strife. I just wish that Ben would be a little more action man. Uh, We finally get to see Ben teaching a class. We're talking about the Trojan War. They're trying to take our rights away. I understand your concern, but right now we're here to discuss gay imagery in mythology and history. If Proposition 14 passes, pretty soon we'll be history. He's right. He's right. Well, there's a meeting at the center. You gonna come? Yeah. Well, was this scene just there to snap Ben out of his funk about Hunter and get him to go rejoin the anti-Prop 14 movement? I feel like Hunter deserved more. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Of course it was there. Because, yeah, because Hunter is no longer in the storyline. And here, though, he has young queer people... Because, I mean, granted, this is an assumption, but based on the way the class was speaking, they were talking about, you know, it's so hard for us to talk about this when you have something so real like Prop 14. And then he sees like, oh, there are there are still reasons to fight. And I'm looking right at them. I'm looking at my students. Would have been better if we like saw Hunter in like the back of the class or something. He strolls up. <laughs> I mean, he's just kind of secretly yeah. watching it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. OK, let's talk about Ted and Troy. Uh Ted is still fucking Troy, as we get nice montages of. Yes, he is. He is fucking him. We talked earlier about whether Troy was versed or not. And I just I was looking at my note here and I said, my note was, uh, what we learned here is that Troy is verse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he he topped Ted when he was a pity fuck, but now he's a hungry bottom is the second part of my note. In these, in these sex montages, especially the ones that were set to opera, and all of the positions that they had and all of the thing, all of the surfaces in which they fucked. I swear to you, at some point, Troy was fucking Ted. I'll go along with that. I'll believe that one. I want to believe. Yes. <laughs> I did like uh, 
the the opera here though. Uh, the first one was uh, the flower duet aria from Lock Me. That opera is about forbidden love. Uh, it's really beautiful, and it's it's a little sad that it's just kind of widely used in like pop culture commercials now. Uh, it's a really approachable aria, though, and it's it's a duet between a soprano and a mezzo, and it fit perfectly. I, I started to hear it, and I was like, oh, my God. Culture. And then I was thinking, I'm not sure why this is here, but we know that Ted is an opera fan, and so I think that's like Ted's theme. Whenever Ted mm-hmm. is having a theme, he needs opera. What I didn't understand about this story, though, is what Emmett's angle is. He's pressing Ted hard to fuck him over. And he's counterbalanced by Brian. Have you forgotten what that person did to you? How he humiliated you? Aunt Betty thought. Thanks for the memories. That's why I'm waiting for exactly the right moment when the revelation of who I am will have maximum impact. Might I interject a word or two? They say revenge is a dish best served cold, but in this particular instance, it's a dish best served hot and hard. As many times as possible. And you've served it almost as many times as McDonald's. Remember your plan, your strategy. I say screw your courage to the sticking place. Better yet, just screw. I, I just don't understand why Emmett is pushing so hard on this. He, he never really explains why it's so important to him that Ted puts one over on Troy. I think they needed an angel and a devil moment, and that's what it's serving. It's serving that purpose. I, I'm not stretching to, to find a, a cohesive reason within the storyline <laughs> for this to happen. It's just, oh, we need to have this moment of fantasy where there's where they're floating on the ceiling. Revenge just doesn't seem Emmett to me. Revenge seems more Brian. I didn't like how Emmett was being cast as the the devil here you know even has like guy liner on oh that's true thank you for pointing out the guy liner because i noticed that too. i know it was great and it was <laughs> like really this, hot this time, but... well this whole time though i was totally thinking that ain't that emmett was the angel and brian was the devil because brian is telling him to continue on with the carnal pleasure of it all and emmett's trying to steer ted towards what his original goal was which is the revenge but that also does put emmett in a bad light right <laughs> so, and i don't think that should have been so emmett. double one and double two <laughs> i don't know well and then uh it gets a little bit better this mythology piece gets a little better of the angel and the devil which is round two with troy uh when ted is pounding him on the coffee table and that's also yeah. where we get the handstand uh the opera there is a wagner opera wagner operas are like deep dark and scary and full of mythology and right of the valkyries is playing mm-hmm. that opera or that aria from the opera is purely about death and being transported to the afterlife by flying horses I'm not sure what this meant. What did it have to do with Ted fucking Troy other than, I don't know, doing it acrobatically, like flying horses? I was going to say, I think it was was more just like a lot of, we are going to show them fucking. So I think they just went with dramatic music without actually thinking of like, oh, what does this dramatic music mean? Because Ride of the Valkyries is, Ride of the Valkyries is such a famous opera that that is used in pop culture over and over again. Mm. (laughs) I read too much into it. 
the, the other note that I wrote about this is uh, um, that part where Brian and Emmett are on the ceiling was like, comedy relief. And then my question was, is comedy called for here? Because it seems like this story could have been carried out without the comedy bit. I mean, I thought the whole thing was over the top. Like, like I understand that Ted and opera sort of go hand in hand. But with the way that, it actually really drove me nuts watching those camera, like the camera angles flip over and over and over again as they're fucking their way to oblivion <laughs> that I, I didn't like it. <laughs> uh, I loved it. I was no, I, all about this. I did not. <laughs> uh, so, so let's talk about the big reveal. Uh, up until now, I like Troy. I didn't remember that Troy was a scoundrel from his pity fuck. It was clever writing to keep that away from us throughout the, the entire story and then put the character back into that scoundrel mode to push Ted over the edge to call him out. It was like Troy was using an entirely different voice and demeanor when that guy came up to him in the bar. Fucking losers. They just don't get it, do they? And these guys, I feel sorry for them. I can't help it my nature so out of the goodness of my heart i have sex with them give them something to remember for a rainy day but it's never enough they're pitiful fucking pitiful yeah i know what you mean and i also love that the other pity fuck guy was kind of like a mini tad he was yes yeah um, that sold the scene but i'm not so sure i like ted's behavior here i i think it's a little bit psychopathic how he described waiting for the right moment, seeking him out, annihilating him. I thought there was something familiar about you. Yeah, I was one of your pity fucks. A fact you made painfully clear. Well, guess what? Now you're mine. They don't look so bewildered. I sought you out. I waited for the right moment. Yes, this is it. I'm a big fan of second chances, and Ted was a big fan of just like destroying this guy. And I don't know if I, I like, I don't know if I like Ted in that moment. Okay, so it's I think it's good that we're talking about it because when I was initially watching it, when he said, "Now you're mine," I was screaming, "Yes, Ted! Yes, <laughs> you finally did it!" But it's a good point in that yeah. You know, then Troy like is like, "No, I really liked you." And, you know, and he, and he tells them off and it's like, and it's like, did, did Ted actually just screw up something? But it, you also have to remember, like, this guy's behavior was abhorrent and has been doing this to a lot of people and has clearly hurt a lot of people, including Ted. So Ted sort of did what he had to do. Well, yeah, uh, Troy could have changed, though. Ted could have been the one that had a good influence on him that calm down his youthful indiscretions, but it's a double-edged sword when you're playing like a revenge game with people. Mm -hmm. You This could go like either way. And I also really disliked Emmett's little clap out at the end. I just don't think Ted's behavior is like praiseworthy here. It's, it's relatable but and understandable, but, neither, but. But neither was Troy's. Uh, Troy's behavior a long time ago, right? But no, but he was clearly doing it too when he tore up the guy's number. Uh, yeah. How many times have you done that in the bar? You get somebody gives you your number and you have like zero interest. So you don't even bother putting it 
in your pocket? I'll let you know when that ever happens. What? It's been so long since somebody asked for my number. I've... Well, you've been like married for like a long time. Uh, I'm not married yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, folks, stick around. We got a lot more to talk about tonight. last runner of the evening is uh, Lindsay, and Lindsay's mother is back. She's played by Pixie Bigelow. It's an interesting story idea for Lindsay to move home in her mid-30s. I know we've had our differences, and you have no idea how much it hurt me. But considering your current situation, can't we just put all that behind us? I'd like nothing better. Good. Then come live with us. What? Your dad and I talked it over, and we think it a splendid idea if you and Gus were to move in. At least until you get your life back together. But it's a little hard to swallow, especially considering what her parents had put her through in the other mm -hmm. two episodes that they appeared in. Yep. I'm also curious what Lindsay's long-term plan would have been with this. How long is she going to stay there? Like, was it, I'll stay there for like six months to save up money to do X. Right. Or repair their relationship. Like when her mom was saying, I know we've had our differences, but can we please do what we can to put that behind us? We want to get to know Gus. My entire, the entire time I was like, wait a minute, you're all of a sudden going to be real cool with this. You're cool with the whole lesbian thing from go. I thought, what is their motive? And what's Lindsay's plan? <laughs> like when, it, she, how long is she going to stay there? Is she going to like stay there until they die and then take over the house or or like within six months somehow create enough of a repaired relationship so they just give her the down payment or something? Actually, now that we're talking about this, I'm reconsidering my next note, which was uh, about Lindsay's bedroom. That was creepy, by the way. Well, did you find it weird that her bedroom looks like she literally just left for her first year of college? Yes. Maybe that was the like the whole thing. You're going to you're going to tell me that you've given you've all but disowned her so you've would have at least done some remodeling to make it a at least a guest room. Yeah, told her to get her shit out of there. <laughs> but but you you keep it all pink and shit like she's a fourteen year old. It, it was very strange. But when you mentioned before that maybe the the parents were trying again, it starts to make a little sense. Like these people are clearly off their rocker. So I guess in that sense, I can see them preserving that room. <laughs> <laughs> hoping that she'll come back at some point and be straight, be the, the straight little pink princess that she started out as. But I don't think that was like, really what they're doing here. Yeah. Mm -mm. <laughs> I was, no, there were so many alarms going off. Dinner at the Petersons was kind of interesting. Uh, that man was quite charming. I'm afraid I'm a little young for this crowd. My prostate's still in working order. Sheesh, I couldn't believe that those parents told this guy that she's straight. He had such a cute pickup line, though. Would you mind if I stopped by your gallery some afternoon and took you to lunch? That's a good one. I'm going to use that line. <laughs> I was just, oh, <laughs> yes, please do. I fell for that. <laughs> I was like, Lindsay, go on the date. <laughs> just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's like Sam Auerbach part two, right? That's what's that's what's so great. Like it, it kind of it, it's so disappointing that this is the only time we really see this guy because he actually seemed absolutely charming, stable, clearly he was funny, is doing well for himself. Yeah. Like okay, I'm in. Yeah, keep this guy. <laughs> we need more straight stories. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, I know. That's exactly what you've been hunting for here. <laughs> straight stories. Surely at this point, Mrs. Peterson would know that Lindsay isn't going to go straight, though, right? This has been a long time. Well, clearly, she, <laughs> she did not. So I guess Lindsay did not stay the night then at the house because she appears at Melanie's house with nowhere to stay other than saying, I'm going to go stay at a hotel. Back in my head, I'm thinking, how about Michael's house, right? Everybody stays there. Right. It's now the new, it's like the new gay Airbnb. Did you notice that Melanie seems to be back on her bipolar medication this episode? <laughs> She's like oh calm, even, clear-headed, likable. Just last episode, in like the last four episodes, she was a lunatic. I'm going to sue you and you, and I'm going to take you for all your worth. Oh, come in, stay, I'll put some tea on. What the fuck just happened? These characters sure do an awful lot of moving without plans. It's like Justin just like left with nowhere to stay. Lindsay just leaves with nowhere to stay. (laughs) So I don't know about you, but it's like my overriding concern of the day is where might I sleep that night? Where may I find safety? They're just like up and out, right? So let's talk tops and bottoms for this episode. What was your top, Matt? Um, let's see. I had a I had a few. Now, it, <laughs> I, we 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 all had a, like our problems with some of the storylines. All of them. Yes, but I I was still able to find bits and pieces that I, I I liked within them, even if I didn't like where they overall went. So one loved that Justin was gaining his independence. Love that he was on his way to find himself outside of what that means being attached to Brian. Because he's been, this is the one man that he is, I guess that's kind of tricky, tricky with Only Ethan, man. But, right, he's been able to start figuring out what it is that he wants and do something for himself. So I liked that. I also really liked Ben's storyline in terms of missing Hunter and how going through his class and their discussion helps him gain perspective and that he can still fight while still missing him. Like, it's not sort of a replacement. So I I really liked those. My top, uh, believe it or not, is uh, the Ted and Troy story. It had problems. Mm. But I like this best because it made me really think if Ted was acting honorably. I like the good and evil play out that was kind of going on. And I like being left with the thought that Ted really made a bad move with this. Well, and I, I would agree with that because I feel like Ted was also questioning what he did. He totally could have had everything that he wanted since season one, Ted's Not Dead, which is to <laughs> be in a relationship with somebody that's hot, that he's fucking all the time, that he enjoys being with, and he killed it. And it's unfortunate, though, and this is sort of a verse top, it's unfortunate that Postoff didn't do a little bit more with that. Like, let Ted have a problem with what he did. It's never mentioned again. No, of course not. <laughs> All right, so what's your bottom? Uh, my bottom would be Brian's wager with Brandon. <laughs> First of all, gross. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, honestly, I have trouble finding either one of them attractive, so I don't know why they think that they either one have a shot at being the, the king of Liberty Avenue. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Just gross. My bottom is the contest. <laughs> yes, that is exactly it. I actually know people that have done like variations on that theme, but it wasn't like yeah. 10 guys. It was like one guy. <laughs> and it was also like if it, of all the times we've discussed like recycled storylines, even within the show, that feels like a recycled storyline just in general. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, welcome. That is like every late 90s, early aughts 
teen rom-com, you know, she's all that or uh, 10 things I hate about you or, you know, they're like, they're, they all have that kind of like secret wager and then it all like blows up in their face by the end of it. But then they have to figure out a way to be forgiven. And I'm like, I don't care. It's also my entire like Boys Town life where it was always a competition of yeah. people to get such and such or I saw him first or you back off. If you're my friend, you'll back off, you know, stuff like that. And so I'm looking forward to watching this play out. I've only been in that kind of situation twice. One, where I was the one, <laughs> uh, where I was the one that was being competed for. So oh, into that. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, I was like, I've never seen where I thought, oh my God, are two guys going to actually fight over me? <laughs> <laughs> I was like saying, no, go away. Stop. You don't do that. But stop. Also don't like, come do back. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, and then another time where a guy was being hit on by someone I knew and I was like, no, I want him. And, uh, I'll take you down. (laughs) I won. So there you go. Uh, so my bottom of the night was Ben, uh, as usual, Ben's stories are thin and they inexplicably wrap up. We got a little bit of strife here, uh, which I commented on. Uh, I thought it was just a bit of a stretch for his lecture to snap him out of his hunter funk and never give Hunter another thought and cause him to join the anti-Prop 14 movement. So once again, it's like we need some a little more meat around Ben. Like we had when we first met him, those were some of the best episodes that we critiqued. That scene where he was uh, about to hook up with Michael and, and Michael thought he could get with an HIV positive man and then was in the bathroom and saw medication cut to street noise. That was some mm-hmm. of the best Ben work. And that was his first episode. All downhill from there. I could still get onto Ben's meat. <laughs> this has been episode seven of season five, Hope Against Hope. Next time on Still Quarters Folk, Justin finds himself in jail for protesting Proposition 14 in front of his father's store. Welcome back, <gasps> Craig Taylor. A scandalo. Melanie starts dating, and Emmett is surprised by a familiar face who just happens to play football. Really? That's episode eight of season five, and it's called Honest. To yourself. If you like what you heard today, a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us would be much appreciated. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at StillQueerAF and on Facebook at StillQueerAsFolk. Find me on Instagram at Patrick Randall if you want to connect with me directly. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Matthew Pete Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Patrick Randall. And I'm Matt Dominguez. Still Queer's Folk is a production of Slightly Unbalanced. Matt Dominguez wrote and performed the show with me tonight. New episodes every other week for season five. Still Quarters Folk was made with love in Chicago.